0: Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know, Ask Katie Anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad you're here. Today we have a bunch of wonderful questions all around, I mean, different topics. We could talk about eating disorders, we talk about the therapy process, we talk about alcoholism, everything in between. Without further ado, let's jump into this first question. It says, Hi, Katie. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I was wondering about your thoughts on whether it's important to continue to discuss things in therapy that our therapist thinks have meaning, but we may think are completely inconsequential. I've been seeing my first ever therapist for about three months since I was diagnosed with an illness that is very very likely to significantly shorten my life. Oh my God. I'm 29, by the way. I'm so sorry. Therapy is a whole new world to me and is proving very challenging, but I need somewhere that I can calmly make decisions, and I'm sure I will need help to accept some difficult things down the line. It happened to come up in session a few weeks ago that I suck my thumb. This is something that I've done since I was born, and I've never really given it a second thought. I'm fine with it, but my therapist is not. I understand. We'll talk about this. She has brought it up every session since and has plainly said that all the adults she knows who suck their thumbs do so because of trauma in their childhoods, which I do not have. She was particularly interested when I said that my fiance gets irritated when I'm doing it because he says it's as if I'm in a trance. Interesting. And he struggles to get through to me. My mom has said the same thing, but I just feel very relaxed. There's nothing more to it. I've told her that it's just a habit, but then we just look at each other and she keeps asking me about it. It's, um, It was funny to start with, but now it feels like she's following a total red herring and it's wasting time. I googled potential issues arising from thumb sucking and none of them apply to me. Surely it's for me to identify whether or not this is a problem. Even if it were, to be honest, I have bigger fish to fry. Do you think that these conversations are a waste of time or am I missing something? Maybe she's grasping at straws because I've previously made not thinking about my feelings a priority. So for now, I'm struggling to identify and express what I feel. Many thanks in advance if you happen to answer this. Of course. And there's a add-on to this, but let's jump right in. Now, sucking our thumbs in adulthood is is very interesting. Now, you the trauma. So I'm just gonna give you some of my thoughts, and I'm sure your therapist is thinking the same, but maybe won't say it as bluntly as I have the opportunity to because of this podcast. Now, when we talk about trauma in childhood, I assume your brain is jumping to like sexual abuse, physical abuse, or, you know, addiction in the family or something like that. Having a tumultuous upbringing. What I think might have been happening to you is what I would call emotional neglect, where you had to find a way to soothe yourself because no one was there to help you. Like no parent came to your aid, rubbed your back, told you it was going to be okay in a way that felt soothing. So you had to find a way to do it yourself. That's why children do suck their thumbs, by the way. it is It triggers um, part of our vagus nerve. And it technically, because of that swallowing, you know, that motion, if you do it, you can feel along your throat, those muscles tense and release. It's actually like in our nervous system calms us down. We're wired to be calmed through sucking and swallowing. Hence why being fed by someone is really soothing to our system. If we're crying or we're dysregulated and we, we like look up at the person who is feeding us, we connect with them and our body feels soothed. We feel better. Thumb sucking is just the same. And so I have questions about the emotional connection that you have with your parents and your upbringing or how you were brought up? Were your parents very absent or at least emotionally absent? I have a lot of questions about that and very, I'm very suspicious. And then second, if you're like, no, everything was great. I also think that we need to find a more appropriate way to soothe our system because thumb sucking doesn't actually help anything. It's just soothing your nervous system. And I mean, I know you're saying there's issues that come up with it like Um, your teeth can be, you know, changed. I know uh, dentists really don't like it when people like when children keep sucking their thumbs because it can mess up our our dentistry and things like that. Also, I mean, it's not something you want to do in public. At least you have a fiance that's not like completely, you know, annoyed with it. But the fact that you go into like a trance-like state and they can't get through to you, to me just says there's more there. It sounds like a little dissociation, which I find very interesting. And I wonder if there were times in childhood when you sucked your thumb when maybe you felt... I don't know, not safe, not taken care of. I don't know. So those are my thoughts. I think that's probably what your therapist is thinking too. Because I mean, just think about it. What purpose does it serve? Because it's a very not to say that no one does it, because it, it is a not unco I mean, it's not common, but it's not uncommon either. Like I've heard this from a lot of people. I've had many patients over the years. I had a patient back in the eating disorder treatment center who used to suck her thumb. Um but overall, it's, it's not really an age-appropriate coping mechanism at the very least. I know you're like, it doesn't bother me. I don't really care. Okay. We don't necessarily have to work on it, which moves me into kind of the second chunk of what you're talking about when you're saying like, well, you know, why is my therapist doing this? Is it really important that we talk about something that I don't think is important? And the truth is, let her know. I think this this conversation that you're having with me should be how with your therapist, where you say something to her to the effect of like, hey, I know you think that the thumb sucking means something, and maybe it does, right? We can just throw that up. Maybe it does. But it seems completely inconsequential to me now, and I feel like I've got bigger fish to fry. Like, I got shit I need to process. I just got a diagnosis that's pretty fucked up, and I need to know how to figure this out, how to talk to people, how to make decisions about my life, right? I think you can say that to her in a very direct, matter-of-fact fashion, because it is true, right? Okay, yeah, I suck my thumb, but right now I have like life-threatening things I need to process, and I think we would all agree that that's much more important than maybe diving into the past and like figuring out why we're doing this. Um, Yeah, so overall, I don't necessarily, I, I see where your therapist is coming from, I guess in summation, I see where your therapist is coming from, I don't necessarily think the conversations about the thumb sucking are a waste of time, but if you feel that they are, it's your treatment. That's why it's like, it's a relationship, right? We work with our therapist and it's important for you to feel heard and not to feel like you're wasting every hour talking about something. You're like, I don't really care about this. Like I said, I don't necessarily think it's the best coping skill. I'm curious where it started and how come we're still doing it and we never stopped. But if that's not where you want to go with this for right now, that's okay because it's your therapy let your therapist know. It's okay. You can guide it too. It's not just us running everything. It's with our, like with your experience, with my expertise, right? We work together. So speak up, let them know. But I am suspicious. I do want you to know that your therapist is not off base. I personally have not had a patient who sucks their thumb into adulthood who doesn't have something else going on, some kind of trauma. And I know that's what she said. And you're like, oh, that's not true. I, I wonder what, I'm curious, because even think about little T traumas, right? Like moving a lot as a kid, maybe being bullied in school. This doesn't just have to be your parents. This could be a teacher or, I don't know, a coach or a friend or a friend's parents or something. I feel like something must have happened. And I know that you're saying no, but again, the neglect component, maybe, you know, things like that. Okay. There was an add on to this. It said My therapist is surprised that I am I am non-binary, but it doesn't bother me. Why would they be surprised? It's your experience. He keeps trying to get me to admit that I struggle with it. That sounds weird, but I don't struggle with it and would rather talk about what does bother me. Is it surprising to you that a non-binary person doesn't care? No, everybody's different. I find it bizarre that your therapist like continues to harp on it. I will tell you that statistically speaking, those of us in the LGBTQ plus community do have higher risks for trauma depression, anxiety, suicidality. I think a lot of that has to do with bullying or feeling like we didn't fit in or, you know, struggling to be honest about who we are. I mean, imagine if if you aren't part of that community, just imagine growing up in a world where everybody was doing something that didn't feel right to you or everybody was acting in a way that just felt wrong. Like you, you know, like for our trans people, let's say you felt like you were in the wrong body. Like that does something to us, right? Mental health-wise, that's really difficult. However, if it's not bothering you and it's not an issue, then you should just move on. And I, I would mention that to your therapist, like, hey, I don't think I have any issues with this. We can circle back if something comes up, but can we move on to something else? Again, it's okay to advocate for your care and to tell them, like, hey, I don't want to talk about this. This isn't helpful right now. You know, You can always circle back, but I don't find it surprising. Like I said, statistically speaking, people struggle, but that that's just stats. That doesn't mean every person, no statistic is a hundred percent, right? I find that really weird that they're like trying to force it on you. Hmm. So yeah, let them know. And if they keep harping and won't move on, it might behoove you to move on to find a therapist who will actually listen. Okay. Now let's get into question number two. And it says, hi, Katie, happy new year. Happy new year. It says, how do you navigate a loving but toxic relationship with a family member? As a way of dealing with a toxic family member, you said it's okay to cut them off, but what if you don't want to do so because despite the pain it causes, the relationship is full of love? Interesting. To be more specific, my mom means the world to me, and she loves me more than she loves herself. We're also enmeshed, and I'm trying to establish some boundaries good for you. That's probably where the toxicity comes in. However, she easily lashes out at me, hurts my self-esteem, and never accepts responsibility. Sounds a little narcissistic, maybe? It's always my fault. One minute, I have a loving, perfect mom, emotionally attuned, supportive, and caring. Another, I have a mom who tells me the most hurtful things, pointing at my weak spots, and this gets to me, and I believe everything she's saying is true. This roller coaster happens almost on a daily basis, less so since I moved out. I'm so glad that you moved out. I talked to her many times about it, but she doesn't change. I rationally understand that she won't change, but I can't accept and tolerate this behavior without the consequences for my mental health but also reducing contact with her seems impossible since I miss her so much. How can I find the balance? Okay. Now here's what's happening. And I know this is going to be hard to like digest. So take your time with it. But due to the enmeshment and the lack of boundaries that you've had with your mom over the years, like your entire life, this there's this intense unhealthy attachment. I know we talk all the time about like secure attachment and how we want our parents to come when we call and be there to support and all these things. And you'd say like, well, my mom did all that. Yes, but she overdid it. So there's a balance. Like we don't want our parents to emotionally neglect us. And we also don't want them to be helicopter parents or to be enmeshed or to be codependent. And if people are wondering what that word means, the term enmeshed means they're like legitimately are no boundaries between you and this other person. What's them is you and what's you is them. Therefore you there's no independence. You don't you don't feel free to make your own decisions on things. You can want to turn to them before doing anything and you like their feelings become your feelings and vice versa. Okay? So if they have a shit day, you feel shitty, right? Now, codependence on the other hand is when we are like dependent upon, codependent upon each other for survival. Essentially the old saying that I, one of the sayings I really appreciate that I think describes codependency very clearly is one person's codependent, one person is dependent on a substance or being emotionally immature or something. And the other person's addiction or dependence is on that other person and making sure their life is good. I think that's how it goes. I might've messed that up. I think it's like their addiction is a substance and my addiction is them. Okay. So that kind of hopefully helps explain those two terms. Now, I think because of this enmeshment, you have an unhealthy attachment to your mother, which is why you miss her so much, even though she's incredibly abusive. I might even argue this could be considered a trauma bond, which I have a video about this from, I don't know, probably like two, three years ago, maybe greater, I don't know, maybe four years. Um, Time is an illusion, right? Now, trauma bonding is when we bond with someone who's harming us as a means of hoping. It's kind of like fawning. It's like we hope that we can please them enough that they won't hurt us anymore. And it can also be like a form of Stockholm Syndrome, which if you don't know what Stockholm Syndrome is, it's when we almost like attach to our, the person who's harming us, our abuser, or whoever it might be, as because we like, we relate to them and they've showed us some kind of kindness and that we think that we need to attach to them for survival, okay? So I think this is kind of what's happening for you. And the truth about it is, this relationship is really toxic. And I know this sounds bad to say, but the love that you're feeling sounds more like we're kind of caught in this like abuse cycle. It's love bombing, like this narcissistic abuse cycle where we're like love bombs. So everything's like wonderful. Yay. I love you. You're so beautiful. You're so important. You're so smart, yada, yada, yada. Then it's maybe like this little tension building or something doesn't go her way. And the abuse happens. We lash out, and then it's like, "Oh my God, I love you!" And we just go bump, 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 round and round and round. So it's really not even healthy love that we're experiencing, which I know is hard to hear, and it's hard for me to even say it, especially in this kind of forum where we're not—I don't see your face, and I don't want to, you know, upset you. But I believe that's kind of what's happening here. Now, processing through this in therapy is going to be key because this unhealthy attachment and this like a kind of trauma bond that we have or this abuse cycle that we have with our mother is is very toxic and it's very dangerous and it, it isn't allowing you the space to be your own person because you said you miss her so much i mean i talk to my mom most days and i love her and i miss her some you know like let's say i haven't been home in a few months i'll start to miss her but i don't i don't need her does that make sense? And I hope for you to have that same kind of closeness, but independence from your mom. Now finding this balance is going to take some trial and error. Now I would, like I said, I really think therapy is where it's at for you because my gut reaction to this is we have to find a way for you to engage, communicate the boundary, and then she's not going to change. But the boundary would be Mom, if you start talking to me this way, I'm going to hang up. Or, mom, if you talk to me that way, I'm going to leave. And then you do it. So, if you're with her and she starts talking, sh- like trashing you, you get up and you leave. I don't care where you are. I don't care what you're doing. If you're at a restaurant, you go up and say, I'd like to pay for my sandwich or whatever. And you just fucking get out of there. That's a boundary. A boundary isn't just the request. We can hope that she'll change, right? I wish she would. It'd be so much easier if she wasn't so abusive. However, she isn't, and we've given her ample opportunity to do that. And so that's really where we're at. That's the balance, is you engaging as as you want, you have to decide what that looks like, and you holding that boundary for yourself. So if she starts yelling at you on the phone, you just hang up. You can even stop her mid-sentence, because I'm sure over the years you've, you're very attuned to her. You recognized in that flip, when that switch gets flipped, right, and she's all of a sudden going to be mean and angry, you can say something like, hey, mom, if you talk to me this way, I'm just going to hang up. I love you, but I'm going to hang up. Let yourself out. You don't have to keep, you know, taking the hits and being wounded. That's the boundary, okay? I know that was kind of tough love. I hope you know it comes from a good place, but that's kind of how I think we can can move forward with this relationship. There was a comment on this that said, I have a similar relationship with my mom. I love her so much, but I never tell her anything about the severe mental health issues I've dealt with for the past few years. I have moved interstate, but visiting my parents is so hard because my mom will verbally abuse me nonstop for things that I have nothing to do with, like her past trauma, which she somehow makes it out to be my fault, even though her trauma occurred before I was even born. And I consciously try to do the opposite of what will trigger her. Mm. That's that uh walking on eggshells thing that's kind of that people pleasing behavior my dad gangs up with her against me when I have literally done nothing and I get and and I'm getting screamed at and I'm trying to get away so that I can cry and recover on my own but she says that but he says that my mom is hurting and needs everyone to be together and happy and try, I try to set a boundary by saying I'm hurting too and need some time to gather myself and then offer emotional support to my mom sorry for the rant, but the question is, what's a good way to navigate my relationship with my parents when I love them, but they have no understanding or respect for me and my feelings? Again, um, if you didn't attend my boundaries workshop live, it's available on my website. I highly encourage both of these people who ask these questions to access it. You can just go to katimorton.com, go to the shop, go to the boundaries workshop and purchase it. It's uh, It was filmed, it's two Fridays for two hours a piece is when it was live. It was live on January 6th and 13th. And this will really help you with this, because again, what we're doing here is we're trying to get them to change. And the more that we put the, our power or our hope or our growth in someone else's hands, the less empowered we are, right? Then we can feel like, sorry, I had a tickle here. We can feel like we're out of control. Nothing's going to get better. We feel hopeless and helpless. And that's the opposite of what we want to have happen. We want to feel empowered. We want to feel like we have control over our life and our emotional state. And when it comes to our family, especially if we want to continue that relationship, we have to uphold a boundary. So when they start doing this again, just like I said to the other person, when your mom starts yelling at you and trying to blame you, you can say, mom, when you talk to me that way, I'm going to have to leave. And if your dad gangs up and says, like, you need to take care of your mom, you can say, dad, when you talk to me this way, I'm going to have to leave. And then you leave. Now, I do want to acknowledge that this change, right, because what you've been doing is this family dance. And I've talked about this in the past, too. Like, If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care if our family's always doing the polka, right? Boom, 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 boom. They're doing this one dance or they're doing a four square dance or a waltz and we change it. And we're like, I only want to do the the Roomba. I don't even know that dance, but let's pretend that I do, right? Or I only want to do the Macarena. That's usually the one I talk about. Then you come in and they're not going to like it. And they're going to bump into you and they're going to try to push you into doing the Macarena or whatever the old dance was, the polka, let's say, right? And we're like, no, I don't want to do that dance anymore. So there's going to be pushback, but you just have to hold to your own because the relationship that you're going to be able to have in order for you to have any relationship at all, unless you want to cut them off completely, which is fine, but it doesn't sound like you do. So if you want to still engage, then that's how we have to do it. We have to hold that healthy boundary. We have to say, you know, if you talk to me that way, I'm going to have to leave. And then your dad, I assume, will come in and say, you're hurting your mom's feelings. You need to be there for her. She's hurting. You can say, dad, when you talk to me this way and you try to force me into caring for someone who's abusive, I'm going to have to leave. Now, I know you're like, I can't say it that way. You can say something like, I won't be bullied and this feels really bad. And when I'm talked to like this, I'm going to have to leave. And then we, we leave. And I know sometimes it's easier said than done, but i encourage I am telling you, you do, do not have to be a punching bag. You do not have to go offer emotional support to your mom after she just like berated you about things. That doesn't make any sense. That's like mind fuckery. that's emotional manipulation. And I it sounds horribly narcissistic and terrible. And so, because you love them and you wanna keep seeing them, that's my recommendation. Figure out how to get out of there, how to end conversations when they become abusive and know that you have every right to leave. You can come back later if you want. If it's like a long drive, you're like, well, shit, I just drove like three hours and now. Drive around for a bit. Say, I'm going to leave for a bit. I'll be back. Just leave. Come back in an hour. If things have calmed down, you can stay. If they haven't, it might behoove you just to go home and, you know, try again on the phone. That's a little easier. Um, But that's how we set and uphold healthy boundaries. Now let's move on to question number 3. This question says, "Hey Katie, happy new year, happy new year. How can I work through my feelings about being unsupported when I needed help? When I think about it, I feel a mixture of hurt and sadness and can become misanthropic. But I want to heal that and I want to move on. My therapist is mostly behavioral, but says he'll help me with strategy with with strategies from different therapy orientations if I tell him" What strategy resonates with me or seems helpful? So I'm looking for something to propose. Okay, so working through your feelings about being unsupported. Now, okay, I'm trying to think of therapeutic strategies, because to me, when we feel unsupported, when we needed help, my question always is, what did we ask for? What did we explicitly tell people we needed? Have we had conversations with our friends and family about ways that they can show up for us? And if we asked them how we can show up for them, people don't often have these conversations. I find like, and I know this, I got a question, I want to say it was last week or maybe the week before, but I got a question about like, how, what do I ask for, right? Sometimes we don't even know. And so take some time to consider, number one, what did we ask for or what did we tell people we needed? And number two, did we even consider, and this might be first, actually, might want to flip-flop them, what it is that we could have received that would have made us feel supported. So one of the things that I would have your therapist utilize, and I mentioned this last uh, podcast, is to take what we call the quote-unquote miracle question from what's known as solution focused therapy, and tell him what it would look like if you felt supported. Let's imagine you woke up and everybody in your life was giving you what you needed and you're you're maybe feeling low what would that look like what would the support look like because sometimes we don't think about it that way and so we aren't able to communicate it and I I believe that might be one tool that I would give you Another would be communication around needs and how do we clarify that I think that could be kind of behavioral even um but I don't I don't really know what it means when he's he's mostly behavioral so he doesn't work any in thoughts at all. I don't know. I have a hard time in my brain, like only thinking of behaviors, but you could ask for some communication strategies. Um, I also think, you know, when it comes to our relationships, we might want to assess different levels, like which ones do we think we can really ask for, for support? Which ones can we not, you know, and just thinking about it first? Because I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what you what you requested if you did request, I don't know who you went to if you went to someone, and I don't know what you were expecting. So I guess I have more questions about this because that would kind of dictate which type of strategies I would use. But I also think something that could be helpful because you're feeling hurt and sad and, you know, um, feeling unsupported. I think some of the tools within dialectical behavior therapy, you can tell them maybe the emotion regulation could be helpful. And that kind of helps us. <sighs> Acknowledge what's going on inside, feel it, and know that we can be in wise mind and we can respond, meaning we could communicate, Hey, I feel a little left out and I would have liked to have been invited. I understand that you just didn't think about it, but I just had to say that, right? So we can respond, not react. Why didn't you invite me? I'm so hurt. Or withdraw completely and like stonewall, right? So that could be helpful. And I think that could be a tool that would be helpful to have in your tool belt, okay? Now, somebody says, follow-up question, how do you deal with being treated like an outcast when showing signs of a mental illness, like being isolated, treated as the crazy one, or the black sheep by close people, Uh, for example, family members, even without showing any dangerous behaviors, but just the stigma related to mental health issues. Thank you very much. Wish you all the best this year. Thank you. You too. Um, These people sound like assholes. I honestly, ugh. I would put up boundaries. So you could say something like, you know, please don't talk to me that way. I find it really hurtful or really offensive, you know? And or take it a step further if they continue, you can say, you know, if you keep talking to me that way, I'm going to have to leave. Because we can try to educate people. We can try to help them understand what mental illness is and like like you said you haven't even shown any dangerous behaviors. So you're like, what the hell's their problem? I don't understand. And but they're still treating you differently, right? We don't have to put up with that. We can explain to them what a mental illness is, what our particular mental illness is and how it shows itself, but at the end of the day, if they're going to keep acting that way, it's not our job to to help them understand or to make them understand. We can't, right? We can't control other people. We can only control ourselves. Therefore, you know, you can say, "I'm sorry, but I have to leave." And just leave. And I know this sucks. I know we wish that people would change and we wish that people would understand or at the very least they would try to educate themselves. However people aren't always interested. People don't always do that and the sucky part is that we can't make them. Now there's another comment said, additionally, is there an alternative for inner child work? It feels very esoteric for me for some reason. Now inner child work, it's interesting I know it can feel very weird and very hard to connect, and you're like, How am I doing this? We don't necessarily have to go into our younger self if we're able to tap into our true self. Because that's really what inner child work is, is that we're all we all grew up out of this child of us and we still act out of these old patterns. So maybe instead of considering talking to our younger us, because that's too hard, or it's too difficult, or it feels so woo-woo, we're like, "Mm, I can't do that. What if instead, we take some time to look back at our life and look for patterns of behavior, meaning certain struggles that we've had with people, right? Let's say we always had friends that took advantage of us, who we gave more to, or yeah, we gave more to them than they gave to us. Or maybe we have a string of relationships where we always dated a person who wasn't emotionally ready and we did all the emotional emotional heavy lifting. Let's say we tend to end up in abusive relationships, right? Look for these patterns or or maybe we push everybody away because we start to feel unsafe. Look for these patterns of behavior and that can help just as much because then we can at least see how our past is becoming our present and through that hopefully meet some of those needs. Again, it's going to take some of that internal personal work where we're like, I think this is triggering me because of a past event. That's that Those connections is essentially what Inner Child Work's trying to help with, as well as to like be able to offer those things to younger us. But if that just feels too, ugh, we can still see those patterns, and then we can attach those patterns to like certain triggers, and we can work to heal those things. Does that make sense? I hope so. So we don't necessarily have to connect with child us, but we do have to acknowledge things that we've been through and how those things might be affecting us today. So we can kind of bring it more into the present and how we can change our behavior now. Okay. And there was another add on it says, what are coping skills to do when you feel unsupported? So like, how can we make ourselves feel supported? Like, how do you stop thinking someone's not going to like you? So you don't really talk to them, to the person that's trying to help because you're scared that they're not going to like you. How do you get get the oh, get the guts to talk to him one-on-one. Okay. Now, coping skills that we can use when we feel unsupported are to offer support to ourselves or to find it elsewhere. And that can look like anything from engaging in therapy or group therapy, um, putting ourselves out there and working to meet new people. This means we might have to try new activities, go to new events and things in our area strike up conversations with people when we're out, Um, all sorts of things like that. Volunteer work is a great way to meet people. So maybe just volunteer in your local community. So those are some of the great ways to what to do when you don't feel supported. We have to find ways to support ourselves. And that could be, like I said, meeting other people, getting professional help. You could also journal, do impulse logs, um, do things that help you, that help you feel better, things that are self-care related for you. You're going to have to trial and error some of these. I have that video, 25 coping skills. You can check that out. Um, Or if there's others that, you know, you find more beneficial, you can give those a go. The comments of that video are filled with ideas. So hopefully that gets you somewhere. But then um, the worry that someone's not going to like you, like to talk, to have real talk with them, so to speak how do you get the guts up to talk with them? I mean, if you've tried a little by little and you think so far they haven't given you any indication that you're too much for them, I would move in little by little. We don't need to jump in and have like real talk with someone and all of a sudden share everything. If that's not the dynamic of the relationship, if the relationship is new and we're afraid that it's going to be too much, it probably is. I know that might sound hurtful, but We shouldn't have like verbal diarrhea in relationships. We shouldn't meet someone and tell them everything about us. That's a struggle with boundaries. Sharing too much or not sharing at all are both indicators of a need for healthy boundaries. And so my encouragement for you would to be or to spend some time figuring out like the layers of a relationship. Now, I know that might be hard, but that's where a therapist can come in. But it's almost like, okay, if someone's a casual acquaintance, what do I share with them? basics, where you live or what you do or how what you're up to this week, like very surface level things. Maybe you talk about your dog or your kids or your relationships or whatever, just the surface level. And then after you've known someone for a while, you can express some discontent with things like, oh, I got into a fight with my girlfriend or boyfriend or, oh, my dog was doing, you know, you can tell them more intensive things about how you're feeling and what's going on. And then then comes a deeper level, right? And so we have to kind of work into these levels. And I would encourage you just to strike up conversations about little things right now and see how that goes. We have to tippy-toe in. We don't want to jump in the deep end because then the likelihood that it'll be too much or it'll scare them away or they'll be overwhelmed by us it's is higher, right? We want to make sure we're setting ourselves up for success. So little by little, share more and more. And I'm sure that person will hang around and be around and be supportive. Okay. Someone else said, follow up about feeling unsupported. I worked with my therapist for about a year and she recently terminated me and says she's unwilling to tell me why. What? Unwilling to tell me why. But the multiple factors went in. oh, but that multiple factors went in her decision. What the heck am I supposed to do with this? I have no idea what happened or what multiple factors are. And I'm just... And I'm just being dropped? How do I find closure? How do I support myself when I'm literally not being supported? This whole thing feels like a hit and run, especially because she knew I had past trauma with prior therapists being unwilling to help me due to factors beyond my control. I'm really upset and unsure of how to give myself closure or how to feel because I literally don't know what it is that I'm processing without an explanation of those factors of her decision. How can I make peace for myself here? Thanks for all you do. Of course, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Um, hmm. That's very strange. And technically, if they didn't give you referrals, it's what's known as patient abandonment. And you can file a claim against their license. I'm not necessarily saying you have to do that. I'm just giving you your options because that is very bizarre. I've never terminated with a patient and not told them why. That just seems, I don't know, that's like blowing my mind have had patients not accept the reasons, but that's to be expected, right? Like a lot of my Eden disorder patients are like, I'm not that sick. I'm like, yes, you are. You need to go into treatment, you know? And then I refer them out to the a higher level of care. I also have patients where I'm like, you need attachment-based uh, work, not just DBT. It's not actually helping. I think you should see it's the specialist or you need trauma specialists or, you know, whatever. And they're like, no, 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 I want to stay with you. And I'm like, but I don't think it's benefiting you, you know? So I've had that pushback with my patients over the years many times. And I feel like that's very common because attachment's a thing and we don't want it to end. But as a therapist, I feel like it's really unethical to, to just drop someone. to if, if they didn't give you referrals, they have to give you, I want to say it's like three to four referrals or something. And they also have to give you time. They can't just like end. You have to give them like a month or two or three or whatever. Every therapist is different. I usually give like a month or two. Sometimes if a patient's having a really hard time, I'll do three months, but usually in a few, you know, gives them time to find another therapist and well, sometimes I'll extend. I won't tell them I'll extend, but I'll extend if they're having trouble finding someone they connect with. So anyways, enough of that. But there's definitely some ethical implications here. Now, when it comes to processing this, I'm just sorry. I think there's gonna be a lot of grieving and I know we don't have answers, but I'm going to be honest here. The answers, they don't always help because we still have to deal with it. It wouldn't change anything. I know we, we've we spent our time with our minds swirling, trying to make sense of something, but we don't have all the information. And so my advice to you is to take time acknowledging the things that you worked on with this therapist and then also acknowledging the letdown and the things you didn't get to work on. And I'd even encourage you to write a letter that you don't send about your frustration with this and what's come up for you as a result. And just help yourself feel what's going on. I don't want you stuffing it down. I want you feeling it. I want you expressing it in a healthy, non-confrontational way. Because otherwise, it's it. we're just like compounding the trauma like we had from before from other therapists, right? And so I want this one to be a little different. Let yourself go through it. Talk about it with yourself. Journal about it. Talk about it with a new therapist if you feel okay with that. If not, I understand with other people in your life about what's going on and how how dysregulated this is, how hard this is, right? Um, I want you to feel free to work your way through it so that you don't stuff it down and you're not alone with it. And then we can move through this grieving process as we essentially have to deal with the loss of this therapist that we thought would stay with us as we work through this, right? But they didn't. And yeah, I know that's a shitty answer, but unfortunately, it's the truth. We're not going to get the answers from her about why. Or, or I think I think you said she, yeah, she. Um, but we have to make sense of it for ourselves. And a lot of that is just allowing ourselves to be angry, to be sad, to acknowledge the things that we worked on and, the, and then acknowledge the things that we didn't. And yeah, just let yourself feel it. I know it's shitty and I wish I could undo it, but also there's some ethical implications if you wanted to take it further. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. And this question says, hi, Katie. Note, I am not diagnosed with OCD, but will be seeking help. Okay. Got it. How important can it be to tell a therapist the content of your intrusive thoughts? I'll be getting help soon for mine, but I do fear their reaction. I fear that they might say my intrusive thoughts uh, might come true or that I subconsciously have some intention to act on them. No even though that's the last thing I'd want to happen. At the same time though, I want to tell them since maybe specificity might help in treatment. I guess I also want reassurance that these thoughts are harmless and irrational. Of course you do. Speaking of, I'm also confused on whether these thoughts are rational or irrational. They are based on the possible consequences of an event that is likely to happen, if that makes sense. I'm hoping that they're irrational just because that means I don't have to continue worrying. Although sometimes I feel like I should worry because my brain sees the thoughts as actual threats. Of course it does and not doing so feels like I'm letting my guard down. So how do you differentiate between irrational and rational intrusive thoughts? If they are rational and something to prepare for, how do I not freak out about the fact that these thoughts, aka my biggest fear currently, is going to happen and I failed to prevent it? Thank you for reading all of this. Um, Out of curiosity, oh also, Out of curiosity, is it normal to suddenly start having these intrusive thoughts or OCD symptoms in general as a young adult or older instead of younger? Yes, very normal. I've mostly only seen posts online with people saying they've had it since they were young children. However, mine didn't appear until I was a young adult. Okay, a lot to unpack here. Now, intrusive thoughts and OCD can happen for a lot of reasons. Um, I put OCD, otherwise known as obsessive compulsive disorder, under the anxiety umbrella. And the reason that I mentioned that is because when we're super stressed out or overwhelmed or anxious, these things can come up. And the reason I say that is because the dynamic of OCD is I have this obsession, right? With the, this person's case, it's this event that they think might might happen and probably all the potential, maybe things that could cause it or things it could cause, et cetera. So we worry about this thing. I'll give it an easier example, like a more direct is like, let's say I'm worried I'm going to burn my house down. It's an intrusive thought. Why why would I burn my house down? So I check the stove like 10 times after every time I use it to make sure it's off. Because I'm afraid if I don't do it 10 times, then the house is going to burn down. Right? So that's my obsession. I obsess, I obsess, I obsess, I worry, worry, worry. And if I don't check, let's say I'm not, I'm not going to check. I'm not going to check that anxiety builds and, builds and builds and builds and builds and builds. And it actually goes away. Spoilers. But that anxiety is so uncomfortable that we do the compulsion. I go check 10 times and then that anxiety is assuaged, So it goes down and I feel okay. And we have to do this. And when we have obsessive compulsive disorder, we spend a lot of time. I think it's like more than an hour a day doing these things. And it can run us late for things. can make it hard for us to leave the house. It can make it hard for us to keep jobs, uh, attend school properly, all those things. So That's how OCD works. Now, intrusive thoughts can be part of OCD, and they can also live on their own. And an uh, intrusive thought is what is known as ego dystonic, meaning we don't like it. They don't feel good. OCD as a whole is ego dystonic, so it's uncomfortable. It feels icky. It's weird. We don't like it. It's embarrassing, right? All of those things. Ego syntonic would be when something feels good and we like it. Now intrusive thoughts tend to be sexual or violent in nature. Not all of them, but most. And that's where the obsessions kind of differ from the intrusive thoughts. They can be the same, but not always. An intrusive thought is like, I'm driving across a bridge and I'm like, oh, you should just drive right off there and kill yourself. Or, you know, you hold someone's baby and you're like, you could just suffocate them. Like things that are not, you're like, what? And they don't feel right. They're ego dystonic. I hate them. I'm embarrassed. I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with me? Right. That's more intrusive thought land. Now, rational or irrational isn't really the issue here. It's whether it feels syntonic or dystonic, and and they just pop out of nowhere. And they usually are have with they come with greater frequency when we're stressed out. Does that make sense? I hope so. And so I wouldn't even differentiate between rational or irrational intrusive thoughts. If if it's intrusive and we don't have any facts to support it, like you said, it, it's likely to happen. Why are we worrying about it now would be my question. And what we're worrying about, do we have any control over? I'd have a lot of questions about this potential event, um, that there's possible consequences. You know, worry doesn't get us anywhere, right? But I, yeah. So you're hoping they're irrational. Yes. I mean, you'd have to, since I don't have the specifics, you'd have to talk to your therapist about this and, and, you know, let them know this is happening, but your brain does see them as actual threats. We can feel the adrenaline dump, like we're going to take action or, or we also feel like embarrassed, even though no one else knows that thought, but I wouldn't even take the time to differentiate between them because an intrusive thought is intrusive and it doesn't have any facts to support it. It doesn't have any, there's no action we can actually take in the moment. It's it's essentially just intrusive. It's a lot of times just like it pops into our head. Like I said, they're usually violent or sexual in nature. If you're having a, a worry, because this might not even be intrusive thoughts. I wonder if you're just having uncontrollable worry. So generalized anxiety disorder. And right now your focus is that event that's likely to happen. So that could be what's going on too. But you have to see someone to kind of figure all of this out. Um, and you said if they are rational and something to prepare, I mean, I guess, again, I don't really know what this thing is. Like, I don't know. Like, are we talking about like doomsday preppers? Like the world's probably going to come to an end and we need to prepare? Or are we talking about like, I think that, I don't know, my boyfriend's going to break up with me. I'm not really sure where we're going with this. I think, oh, and I failed to prevent it. I mean, this sounds like generalized anxiety disorder. And I talk with a therapist about it because it's not about rational or irrational. If we have a concern and there's there's things that we can do that are just, you know, like, let's say, like I said, let's... um about like burning my house down. Like I should probably check after I cook that the stove is off. That's normal. But when I'm doing it like repeatedly and it's taking a lot of time, that's when it becomes OCD. And so with this this sounds like a an uncontrollable worry about a certain situation and I'm I feel like maybe you need a good body shake. We need to see a therapist and we might medication might be beneficial too. I don't know cuz it sounds like our anxiety is running away with things and I, I want you to try to check your facts on this. Do we have facts to support that this is happening? Would this action help? Do we have facts that this action would help? Or are we just making connections? You know, really ask yourself those questions, take your time with it. And hopefully that helps because yeah, it definitely sounds maybe not, I don't know if it's OCD. I don't know if it's generalized anxiety disorder, but yeah, check your facts and play it out. And the timing of when it Happens, it's not always young people. A lot of people have the symptoms when they're younger, but some people who have OCD in adulthood end up having, you know, just more anxiety symptoms in childhood. And maybe we're just more of an anxious person throughout our life, but these symptoms can come up at any time. There's no age limit. Okay. There's a comment on this as an add on. How do you know it's intrusive? And what do you do about them? Intrusive is like it just pops into your head. It's almost like you're driving down a road and you don't see anything. And then suddenly you hit a speed bump and you're like, what? there's no, most of the time, there's no connection. Like I said, you're like driving down the road and you're like, I can drive off this bridge right now and kill myself. Or I could just squeeze this. It's like violent or sexual. I could just have sex with that person. You have these weird thoughts, again, that are immediately repl- like our thought happens, that intrusive thoughts like dropped into our head from God knows where. And our immediate visceral reaction is, oh, or no, or that's horrible. Right. That's how you know it's an intrusive thought. Um, and what do you do about them? So I was surprised when talking about something my therapist had said and what other intrusive thoughts, oh, when talking about something my therapist had said, and what other intrusive thoughts do you have? My thoughts are mostly that bad things will happen to either me or my kids or my family and that they will, they will spiral till eventually I have to distract myself to stop thinking about them or when my kids play, I can't help but picture the worst case scenario and eventually can't watch what they're doing. For example, playing on the monkey bars, I'll have to look away. Got you. So when it comes to intrusive thoughts, a lot of people always say like, oh, you have to do thought stopping techniques, like say, stop, 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 stop. Now that works for some people, but we actually find through newer research that it's not the most beneficial. It actually helps instead to pull our focus onto something else or do the, the CBT technique called play it out. So the focusing on something else is one of the tools I've talked about for years where it's like, when you find this start starting to spiral, I want you to pull your brain into a very powerful memory. And what I mean by powerful memory is I mean, I want this memory to be a really, a really good one, not a negative memory, but it's so thorough and clear. Like in this memory, we remember what we we're wearing. We can tell, we can smell things around us, right? And we can, uh, we remember like the sun on our skin or whatever, what we were uh, using all our senses, feel our clothes on our back, the sun on our skin, what we're tasting, what we're smelling, um, all of that. What did we feel? What were we thinking that day? Who was involved in it? As many details. Imagine you're telling me this story, this memory in as much detail as possible. And using that to pull our brain out of this like thought spiral can be incredibly helpful. We can also distract by doing something else and like, but I find that as soon as we pause, it'll come right back in. But doing the the memory pull can help. So we can do that. But the other thing, the second one, right, the play it out that I said would also help is when we kind of play out the scenarios. Because sometimes these intrusive thoughts live in this like, oh my God, what if land? But like, what if we play it out? Okay, so your kids are playing on the monkey bars. So let's say your child falls off the monkey bars and hits their head. Okay, well, then we take them to the hospital. Okay, well, what if they said they had a concussion? Okay, well, then we go into the concussion protocol and they'd have to do X, Y, or Z. Okay, there's a simple treatment for a concussion. Yeah, there actually is. Okay, what if they broke their arm? You can play them out. And sometimes in doing so, we can remove this like, oh my God, what if it happens? And we can stop those swirling thoughts because we've already thought it through. And when we do the play it out, I encourage you to do best case scenario. So let's say your kids are playing on the monkey bars. One slips and falls and scratches their knee and they're fine. Best case scenario, no big deal. Worst case scenario, broken leg, concussion, break an arm, I don't know, whatever. And then most likely, right, in best case scenario, probably be they don't even fall and they just play. But you can see what I mean. When I want you to play each of those out. And it not only does that distract our brain from the intrusive thoughts, but it also helps us play out all the different potential opportunities or worries that we could have so that we can move on. And we can see that there's actually not that much To be afraid of that we can pretty much manage what would happen. Okay. Okay. I hope that helps. I know intrusive thoughts can be a son of a bitch. Also medication can obviously help with it too. Let's move on to question number five. And this question says, hi, Katie, my therapist seems to have a similar system to yours regarding contact in between sessions when feeling worse, but because I have no other support network, he has said I can't contact him either. My depression has gotten worse lately. I struggle with suicidal thoughts. I have absolutely no one at all who I trust enough to tell how I feel. How do I create a safety net for or how do you create a safety net for yourself if you don't have anyone you dare to confide in? My therapist is the only one who knows how much I struggle. Also, how do I get past my disappointment with my therapist's response? He has told me on several occasions that I should reach out to him if it gets too bad. I recently plucked up the courage to ask him what he meant by those words. It was then that he took back his words and said he cannot take on that responsibility for me because he needs to have someone related to me to get in contact with. And that's, that's correct. I'll talk about that. Um, Okay. I felt incredibly stupid for asking this. I would never have expected to get uh, to get to contact him for support between sessions if he hadn't said so before. I don't really expect support from anyone. That's why I don't dare to confide in anyone. I feel like a huge step for me, it was a huge step for me to tell my therapist that I would like him, like to like help when I'm at my worst. This was me trying to let someone in. Now I feel so stupid for bringing up the subject. I feel more alone than ever. Also, how do I trust in how, also my trust in him has been seriously damaged. How do I fix this? Am I overreacting if I feel hurt by this? Okay. There's a lot to unpack here. This is a great question. And in a scenario that I think happens more often than we talk about here. So first off, now when it comes to getting in contact with a therapist in between sessions, I've talked about this a lot. I only allow my patients to do this if they're in crisis or, and, or if they need to reschedule an appointment. Now, the, the reason for this is because I want you to go out and have other support, other people in your life that you can count on And that would probably be a lot of our homework. I can't have you counting on me for all of your support in between sessions because that makes boundaries get really blurred, and then you can become dependent on me, which is the opposite of what therapy is about, okay? Now, that doesn't mean your therapist isn't there for you, and I would argue that you might need to increase your sessions if your depression is getting worse and worse. You need to communicate that to our therapist, and we need to put together a safety plan, and that's what your therapist is kind of referencing, I guess, because Part of a safety plan and part of the process when it comes to suicide safety is to have people that they can get in contact with if they need to make sure that you're okay. Like, let's say they're concerned about you, you left a message saying that you were going to take your own life, they try to call you back, you don't pick up, they try to call again, nothing, they text, then you need to have someone else to reach out to, like a mom or a sister or a friend or a roommate or somebody. And we need your approval and your release for us to do that. It's kind of part of our process. So I'm surprised he hasn't like pushed to make that happen yet. Cause that's where my brain went. I was like, oh yeah, he just needs to have that. And I understand, but don't feel incredibly stupid for asking about this because you thought that it was okay because he had said that, you know, reach out to him if it gets too bad, which that's how I operate. So I don't know why he would say no. But you were acting on that knowledge, and there's nothing wrong with that. However, I have to give some pushback here. And it's okay to feel hurt by this. The way you feel is okay. It's always going to be okay. You're not overreacting. Remember how we feel is how we feel, and it's always correct, right? It just is. It's it's a fact. You're not it that's not an overreaction. You were acting out of what you thought was available to you and it wasn't. And what I want to talk about. Next, and kind of give you a little healthy, hopefully, direction or kind of pushback is that you thought he said you could reach out when things get bad. Immediately, when he says, you know, I, I can't do that, you know, because I don't have anybody to contact, I, I can't take on that responsibility, you know, all of the protections therapists have to do so that we don't lose our license. Then we went through this spiral was super triggering. You felt incredibly stupid for asking it. And then this is where I find like this is the meat of it. I don't really expect support from anyone. And that's why I don't dare confide in anyone. That to me says so much about where you're coming from. That to me says my whole life, I've never been able to depend on anybody. My parents probably were at at the very least neglectful in some ways. I don't know if there was actual like emotional neglect, physical neglect, abuse or something happening. But it's this uh, kind of anxious attachment or more like avoidant attachment where you're like, I can't trust anybody else. I can only trust me, what I call like toxic independence. That's happening here. And I, as, as a therapist, I would really want to know that that was your thought process because I would really want to work on that. And I think that's part of why your depression is getting worse is because you isolate and you believe you can only count on yourself but you don't have the tools so then you're felt left feeling hopeless and helpless and so that's that, those are my thoughts and so how do you create a safety net for yourself if you don't have anyone you dare to confide in I I challenge you strongly to start confiding in some people pick one pick a person who has seems to just be there we don't really know if we can trust them because we don't really trust anybody, but they've been pretty consistent. They've shown up for us. They they want to hang out. They check in. We just haven't shared, but they share. Who shares with you? That's where I would start because this whole like, I can't trust anyone. It's only me. I'm not going to dare confide in anybody else. That's just going to lead to more isolation and a behavioral, The one of the best if you research this, if you want to just read about it, even probably just Google it and don't even have to go into like Google Scholar or anything like that. Search behavioral activation. And that's essentially the, I don't want to do it, but I did it anyways. And that's the best therapeutic technique. I was trying to find the right word there. Therapeutic technique for treating depression, because depression takes away all motivation, makes us think nothing's ever going to get better. And then it just isolates us and pulls us away. And then of course, then we feel like shit. And then we're like, why am I even here? Right. And you can see how that spirals out. But if we reach out anyways, not to a therapist, because therapist is, we're there to support, but we can't be there all the time. Not, I mean, no one can be there all the time, but that's why you need like a therapist covers, let's say like 10%. Then we need a friend who can cover like 20%. We need another friend who can cover another 20%. Right. So then we have our support net and we have our system around us so that we don't feel like we're alone. We don't feel hopeless and helpless. So I push you to do some behavioral activation and to reach out to one person and start sharing a little bit at a time, just like I talked about before, a little bit at a time about how they're like how you're doing, what's really going on with you. You can let them talk about themselves too. This is going to be a new muscle for you. It's going to be uncomfortable, but I encourage you to press forward. Your therapist is part of your support system but not the whole support system and that's why he gave that pushback. Now I would definitely let him know that this is your experience and this is what you're thinking and this is what it triggered in you. But other than that, I challenge you to reach out and to to build that safety net, that support system, little by little. It's not going to be overnight, but we'll get there. And we can't say I can't do it. That's not going to make you feel any better. In the can'ts and the won'ts and all of that, it just leaves us more isolated. So I challenge you to say, I'll try and see, see how it goes little by little. Okay. I've got faith in you. I know it'll get better. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. And this question says, hi, Katie. I hope you had a great holiday season. I did. I hope you did as well. I have an eating disorder related question, kind of following up on something I asked a while back where you told me it definitely sounds like an eating disorder, being extremely picky, restricting, beginning to calorie count, and struggling with body image a bit this problem seems to come and go throughout my life, which is why I've always questioned whether or not it even counts as an eating disorder. It's a coping mechanism. We need coping skills at different times for different reasons. So of course it would come and go. Eating disorders always get better and worse, just depending on our stress level. This summer, it got the worst it's ever been. But somehow, slowly, the behaviors have started going away again. And all that is left are the thoughts and the guilt. Recently, I got very sick and almost died from my chronic illness and ended up in the hospital for a while. I had barely eaten in an X number of weeks. I was extremely malnourished and throughout my hospital stay lost a lot of weight, putting me in a clinically underweight category for the very first time. Now that I'm home and I'm recovering, I'm realizing that I'm really struggling with having to eat more food and meal replacement drinks and gain back the weight Mm -hmm, because you have an eating disorder. It's bringing up constant eating disorder type thoughts and constant anxiety. I'm not restricting or calorie counting right now, but I'm pretty fixated on my body and with the numbers when they weigh me and the thoughts are just making me go crazy. I guess my questions are, does this even count as an eating disorder if it comes and goes throughout my life? I didn't think that they could just get better on their own, but it always seems to come back in some form months or years later. Yes. Um it counts as an eating disorder. Eating disorders can come and go. I've had patients get pregnant and for years, probably, well, not years, maybe mm, two years, because when they're pregnant and when they're breastfeeding, no eating disorder. Ta-da! Because they're doing it for someone else. Very fascinating. And then once they stop breastfeeding, boom, eating disorder is back full force. So like I said, it's a coping skill, an, an unhealthy or maladaptive one at that, but it's still a coping skill. And so it's there when we need it to help us cope. Sometimes we're doing okay. We don't need it. It goes away. Sometimes we do. It comes back. We might even have a different one that toggles with it, like self-injury or shopping addiction, or maybe depression or anxiety that get worse or better. And it can either toggle with the eating disorder or be in line with it where they happen at the same time. Now, question number two says, why does it come and go like this? I guess I already explained that. And number three, what do I do about it so that it doesn't get as bad as it was in the summer? My therapist doesn't know this is an issue. We have to let our therapist know ASAP because we're going to have to hit it head on. We're going to have to start working on it, figuring out where it's coming from. Why? Why is it here at certain times and not at others? What are the triggers for it? How can we manage those thoughts? I'd encourage you to pick up The Eating in the Light of the Moon is a book that I love, and it's a great kind of opener eating disorder stuff and finding ways to love your body. It's a beautiful book. Um, you can get it on my Amazon shopping. So go amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton, and it's in there so you can find it. There's also the intuitive eating workbook, which you're going to need a dietitian to help you with. Um, I don't know if you'd be able to do it on your own. You could try, but please tell your therapist. Um, She says, my therapist doesn't know it's an issue because it got better when I started seeing her and I had other things to worry about. That's okay, but we can still mention, hey, I have some eating disorder behavior stuff that's been kind of come and go off and on for years, okay? But I'm nervous to bring something else up since there are already so many things that we're working on and I'm embarrassed. I'm sorry this is so long. Thank you so much for any insight you can give. Okay. The funny thing about eating disorders is because they're coping skills, they're they're indicators of something bigger going on. And when you say like, oh, there's so many other things happening, it's part of that swirl. And it has been whether we wanted to acknowledge it or not. And what I mean by that is a lot of times my patients with eating disorders will also have trauma in their past and some have addiction also. I have patients with, you know, PTSD, anxiety, depression, and substance abuse issues and an eating disorder, right? I have patients with BPD, PTSD, and an eating disorder eating disorders rarely occur. I can't even think of an instance where it occurred on its own without something else going on because it's that coping skill. It's that way that we manage the discomfort and things that have happened in our lives. So please, please, please tell your therapist whether that's through email, text, maybe write it down and we hand it to her at the end of the session, however you can, please just let her know this is going on so that that can be part of the conversation. And then they might be able to assist you with something or give you a referral to someone who can. We need to get you extra support for this because it's here. It's an eating disorder and we need to get some help for it before it you know, spirals us out of control. Because Eden disorders will tell you they're in control. They're not. Don't believe any of that bullshit. They only lie. Okay? Okay. Moving on to question seven. It says, hi, Katie. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I hope you're doing well. I have a question about how to get out of what I think is a trauma bond with my adoptive father. He sexually abused me as a preteen and teen, and he has done so many things for me, like adopting me and my sister, paying for me to go to a private, or private Christian high school, buying me expensive gifts, showering me with compliments and paying for college. But he did hurt me. He did, didn't he? There's an open case, and I have the opportunity to speak to an investigator. You should. But if I think about going through with it, I feel like I'm betraying him. That's why he gave you all that stuff. This Christmas, he gave me lots of money and gifts. Of course he did. And I feel like I'm betraying him and my whole family. What can I do to stop feeling like, like this and feeling so confused and stuck? I'm going to just give you a trick. I've had a few patients over the years, one, have to go to trial. But I had a few struggle with this kind of thing. And I I think we could call it a trauma bond. It's a, uh, it's definite, he's, he's definitely extremely manipulative All of the nice stuff is almost like love bombing, which is a form of manipulation, right? It's a way to get something from someone. It's what narcissists do to get us attached to them or attracted to them or to even hang around with them, because usually narcissists are pretty boring too, because they don't really have, they don't know who they are, so they, you know, so they love bomb us. And he he is definitely using the nice things he's done for you as a way to help like make you stay loyal and not tell the truth of how heinous of a person he is. And I know that dichotomy in your brain of like, it's, it's almost, it's like a mind fuck, right? It just doesn't compute. You're like, but he loves me. He's adopted me. He pays for things. He's really taking good care of me, but he abused me for years. Those don't go together, right? You're like, ah, your brain wants to explode. Um, And it could be a trauma bond, but it doesn't sound like you're trying to please him, to keep him around. I'm not sure, you know, but, but either, or I have a video about trauma bonds, if you want to watch. So how do you stop feeling like this and uh, feeling so confused and stuck? The trick is, imagine this happened to someone else. Imagine it's me, or imagine it's one of your friends. Imagine I'm telling you this, that like, Hey, how do you know, does this is, I have an adoptive father. And he sexually abused me, but he gave me all these nice things. So then I feel like I, you know, I don't want to betray him, but he did like abuse me. It was pretty bad. Like, what would you say to me? Sometimes when it's not us and it's someone else, we can see it more clearly. That's usually the trick that I've tried with, you know, like I said, I've had a handful of patients go through this. Only one went to court. It wasn't a good experience. I wish I could tell you it was, but everybody's different and every experience is different. But I would definitely talk to the investigator he harmed you he deserves to pay for it and if you can in any way help prevent someone else from being hurt or him having to pay for it, I mean just things have happened and he needs to he needs to be held accountable right if i'd done something that hurt someone else i would want you know to someone to speak up i'd want to be held accountable he's buying you things to try to buy your favor so that you don't turn on him but you shouldn't be loyal to someone who harmed you. And I know it's really confusing, right? Because it's super manipulative and there's shame associated with abuse and like, oh, but then there's the like the shame and the blame and the guilt. You're like, but I didn't say no, I guess. Or maybe, you know, I didn't really leave. Maybe I could have left. No, we don't have, we're a preteen and teen. We have like no resources. Most like, maybe you could drive, probably not. You have, you're completely dependent financially on your parents. If this is the person that your mom decided to stay with, and he adopted you. So it's like, you know, I'd assume your, your birth father's like out of the picture. So then you're like, oh, this is better than not anybody. You know, it's, it's complicated and it's okay. I'd encourage you to get in therapy if you're not already, because there, I think it would be helpful to have someone where you can talk through all of this because it sounds like, you know, the past is kind of uh, full of trauma, but also confusing. And this manipulation can really do a number on us, right? It it's, it's almost like the goal of a narcissist or of gaslighting in general. So anybody who's abusive usually does a, some form of gaslighting and his form of gaslighting is to harm you, but then to do these other nice things so that if you're ever like, but you really hurt me, he's like, but I did all this. What are you talking about? I never hurt you. You're remembering it wrong. I paid for school and I did a little, right? It's almost like setting it up for that. So it's that mind fuck where you're like, wait, uh, I don't know how to process this. And so that's where therapy can kind of help you tease that out, slow it down, and make sense of it. Um, but just imagine that it's someone else. That can sometimes help. That removal, that externalization of the situation or the problem can help us finally see it more clearly. Or imagine if you had a child. Sometimes that helps too. I've had friends, I've talked about this in the past, when they finally had a baby of their own, then they see how inappropriate. The behavior was when they were a child, you know, and sometimes all of a sudden reveal itself like how bad their parents were, or, or they finally acknowledge, I guess it was trauma, right? Because then you're reminded of just how vulnerable children are. And teens and preteens, we're just, we're so young. I know at the time we think we know everything. We don't know shit. We're just little. We're just little kids. We're just barely turning into like pre, pre, pre adults, right? Anyways, I feel like I'm rambling. I hope that that helps a little bit. Please get into therapy please just consider this, you know, happening to someone else and yeah, also, i guess kind of a, a bigger picture answer to like how do you stop feeling like this? We'll have to work on the abuse and the trauma. We're going to have to start healing from that, but that every time you find yourself trying to blame or shame yourself, i want you to say just imagine that it was Katie or a friend, someone whoever feels safe to imagine. That's why i'm putting myself there cuz you know, maybe i'm Distance enough from you that you're like, oh, that wouldn't be right. I couldn't have that happen to her. Or you know, it could be like your little sister or somebody. Just imagine that that's happening to them, so we can kind of keep pulling it out f- from that shame blame spiral, and the, hopefully that will stop that kind of what you're feeling. That you're like, I'm betraying him. You know, the the therapist to me is like, could we say that he betrayed you? Hmm? Could we? You know, maybe. And we can talk about the manipulation and it's just gonna take some time to tease it out and to, to process the trauma. But in there, you will stop feeling so confused and stuck. Okay, final question, question number eight says, at what point is alcohol a concern with patients with addictive tendencies? People with addictive tendencies or people who are prone to it, what other areas are you cautious of? Can they become addicted to anything easily or what makes something addictive? Okay, now people will say I have an addictive personality. I don't really like that term, but I'm gonna use it because it's well known and people use it a lot. And some people are not predetermined, but are more are statistically more likely to struggle with addiction. Now, there are certain genes. I don't, I'm not a geneticist, so I'm not gonna try to explain them to you because I don't fully understand them completely either. And I read the articles and I reread them and they still don't make sense but there are certain genetic components that we know predispose us for addiction now part of that is our genetic makeup and part of that genetic makeup comes not just from us being us but a lot of it comes from our familial history now i think we'd be it'd be tough to find someone who has no addiction in their family never had a grandparent or a cousin or a a, a blood relative who hasn't struggled with addiction, it'd be hard. Most people have at least one person in their family who's either struggled with alcohol or, or drugs, you know, opioids are so unfortunately common um, right now that it's, it's hard to find someone who hasn't had, you know, a family member struggle. That having an addiction in our family, if it's a close family, let's say like it's my, my mom or my dad, that increases my likelihood of being an addict myself because it's kind of like in in my genetics. Now, just because something's in our genetics and in our genes doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to have a problem with it because and I've talked about this before, we have what's known as epigenetics. So we have these these genes, you know, imagine those little swirly twirlies they always show. On top of it are almost like what I would call well, let's say, let's say all of our genes, you know, these little that chunked into these well, they're like, it's like an electrical system. But in order for them to even be activated or to, to affect us, they have to be turned on, right? I can have lights running, but if I don't flip the switch, they're, I'm never going to see the lights. Your genes are kind of like that, where we have this epigenetics, have, they like turn on the gene and make it active. And that's why a lot of people, especially when it comes to mental illness, like I had a patient who was schizophrenic and he had his first psychotic break, during finals of his freshman year at college. Why do you think that was? Because it was really fucking stressful. And so that gene got turned on. Did he have it in his family? Yes. They had like an uncle and another cousin. And I want to say like a great, great grandpa that had had schizophrenia. Uh, Obviously, back then it was treated poorly. But we knew that ran in the family. So that trigger, we need that triggering event to kind of turn on that gene. So we can have these addictive genetics like most of us probably do, but they won't be turned on until maybe if something happens or for epigenetics, turn it on. Does that make sense? I hope so. I'm getting into like genes and it's it's complicated. So I apologize if it's too much. So that's how it works. That's what makes something addictive. And when we call someone an addict, someone who has an addiction is when no matter how much they try to, well, first of all, the, one of the components is that they have what's known as tolerance. So they need more and more and more of the substance with let's say alcohol or drugs to get the desired effect. So let's say it's alcohol used to take me two drinks to feel drunk. Now it takes me six. Okay, I have a tolerance. So there's that. And then they also the person who's the addict, let's say, let's say it's me, then I've tried to quit and I can't. And no matter how much I try, I just can't. And that's when you're an addict, right? And I've had a tough time. I've told you guys over the years, I've always struggled to really understand addiction personally. I don't know what where the like blocker was and why. I just, I'd just i always refer out. I just didn't feel like I was able to help people in the real way. And I've talked to Dr. Drew a ton and other people who are like specialists in this field, but it wasn't until I listened to the podcast. I don't know which one it was. I forget. But anyways, Armchair Expert, where uh, Dax Shepard talks about falling off the wagon of his sobriety and the way he explains it you get that it's not a choice in the same way that those of us who aren't addicts think it is right it's like you hear it and and i know that sounds bad as a therapist to be like i didn't i couldn't but that's why i would refer out i couldn't i knew i was wrong i just couldn't get my head out of that cycle and i would always think like well why wouldn't you just stop or why wouldn't you just you know it was just really hard for me. And it wasn't until then that I understood that. And so that's where, that's what an addiction is. We need more to get that same desired effect. We have some tolerance. We've tried to quit, we've tried to stop or lessen, and we're unable to. So we feel like powerless over whatever the substance or thing is. Now, I think that's all the questions. Can, oh, can they become addicted to anything easily? I would lightly, um, yes. And anything is a very broad term. So I want to say, yeah, you can get addicted to anything, anytime. But people who have addiction issues are more likely to become addicted to other things. Like even um, in Dax Shepard's case, he used to be addicted to beer and cocaine. And this time it was an opioid. He had like a painkiller because he had surgery on his hand and he found a way to get more and more and more and more. So I'm not sharing anything, obviously, that wasn't published in his podcast. I don't know Dax personally. But he talks about how he didn't even think he'd have an issue with that, but he's he's like, but I'm an addict, and everybody's going to be different. But again, once that gene is like turned on, and we struggle with addiction, that's why people, you know, when they are addicts, go like cold turkey. It's not like oh, I can just have a couple beers or oh, I can just do drugs sometimes. No, because they struggle to stop. They want they build up that tolerance. They use more and more and more and more, and they have an inability to stop. I hope that answers all the questions there. Um, And it becomes a concern when, honestly, when you aren't able to stop. You know, like, uh, for instance, like a lot of people do like sober January, sober October. An addict wouldn't be able to do that. They might say they would, but they'd probably be lying about it because they wouldn't want anybody to know that they can't. And so that it's a concern when you just can't stop, which I know is kind of hard. And if you feel like you're using alcohol as a way to cope with bad feelings i would also say that that's a concern if you're like oh I had such a shitty day i'm just gonna get wasted like that thought sean and i watch a lot of trailer park boys and they always say like i'm just gonna get really drunk i'm like who talks like that but an addict would probably talk like that um because that's the plan right they can't just have one beer or two beers they have to get wasted so those are just some of the tendencies or the things to know what makes something addictive why people can be addicts um yeah. And there's there, there's help available. See, seeing a therapist, NAAA, you know, all of those are great resources, but finding a therapist who really understands is going to be key to overcoming it and understanding because it's a coping skill, just like anything else. I've talked about eating disorder, self-injury and addiction. Drugs and alcohol serve a purpose, right? They numb us out so we don't have to feel the ways that we feel. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that was helpful Happy New Year again. I hope you've had a wonderful 2023 so far. Please take care of yourselves. Thank you for sending in your questions. If you're wondering where I gather these, I gather these over on the community tab of my YouTube channel. So you can go to YouTube, search for Ask Katie Anything, or just go to Opinions That Don't Matter. That's the name of the channel that these live on. Go to the community tab and you will find those I post asking for the questions on Sundays. Okay. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I will see you next time. Bye.